You've actually joined us in the middle of a series that we're doing on relationships. And we're looking at relationships from all sorts of different angles. So we started two weeks ago talking about uh, how relationship with God defines us and um, really shapes all of our other relationships. And then last week, Mike talked about singleness and celibacy. And uh, whether you're single or not, I would highly encourage you to, to go back and listen to that. It's all on the website. And uh, this week, I'm going to be talking about identity. And the first question might be, why have a talk on identity in the middle of a series on relationships? And uh, the answer to that is because when we understand who we are, and when we're secure in who we are, then what that allows us to do is function healthily in all of our other relationships, every relationship that we have, whether we're a daughter or a friend or a colleague or a spouse or a parent. When, when we've got a confident sense of self and a sense of worth, then it means that things like forgiveness, they're never easy, but they come easier. Um, being able to have hard conversations with people that you love becomes more possible. Being able to be vulnerable, um, is, is, we're more likely to do that. To be able to be consistent is something that we'll find we're more able to do when we're confident in our own identity. So that's one reason why it's helpful to look at it. A second reason why it can be helpful to look at it is because um, so often relationships, and this is why it's important to have a talk on something like this when we're looking at an overview of relationships, so often relationships can become for us um, what define us as human beings. And they will always be an absolutely central part of what it is to be human because we're made for a relationship with one another. I mean, the, the scripture is really clear on that. But they, they can become for us, sometimes without us being aware of it, the thing that defines our identity and the thing that, that shapes the way that we think about ourselves, whether it's as a person who is married or a person who is single or whatever all the other categories might be. Those can become things that define us. And actually, if that happens to us, we can find ourselves enslaved and we can find ourselves trapped. And one of the astonishing, wonderful pieces of good news when we come to know Jesus is that he offers to us an identity that brings us wholeness and that brings us freedom and that brings us life. And so really this morning, what I want to try and do is just remind us again, as I've been reminding myself and, and finding it um, so good for my soul, uh, remind ourselves again of who it is that God invites us to be. And, uh, and how that can shape us. And the final reason why it's helpful to look at this is because there is a conversation going on raging in our culture right now about identity. And we as Jesus' people, we have good news to speak into and to share with, with the world around us. But if we're going to share it, we have to get it ourselves, right? So um, that's why we're going to look at it. And I also need to say as a disclaimer at the start of this talk, um, like I did a couple of weeks ago, I have stolen most of the content for what I'm about to say. Uh, Tim Keller and John Wright, if they ever decide to sue me, they will have grounds to do so. So if there's anything that you find helpful or encouraging, uh, I'm afraid I can't take any credit for it. Um, first question, what is our identity? What do we mean when we talk about identity? So Tim Keller defines identity as a sense of self, having a sense of who I am that is like a core that's durable throughout all the changes of life, a sense of self, and secondly, a sense of worth, a sense of our own value. So that's what we're talking about when we talk about identity, a sense of self and a sense of worth. And uh, I just want to read a scripture, John chapter 10, starting in verse 1, Jesus says this. 
Very truly, I tell you, Pharisees, anyone who does not enter the sheepfold by the gate, but climbs in by some other way, is a thief and a robber. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them, and his sheep follow, they follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. And then he says, verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. So there's just two simple things that I want to draw out from that passage. We're going to come back to these, but I'll just flag them now. The first one is, he names us. Jesus gives us a name. And as followers of Jesus, we believe that we need to be named by him. And here's the second thing. Um, He gives us a, a sense of self in that he names us. But the second one is, he also gives us our sense of worth, our value. Not in some abstract way, not in some philosophical ideal that floats around in the sky. But when he says, I lay down my life for you. That's where, in a really concrete way, we can find our sense of worth. So we're going to come back to those two points and back to the scripture. Um, but, but before we come back to it, we have to understand, it's helpful to understand the context that we find ourselves living in today, in the 21st century West. Um, one thing I've, I've found amazing as I've looked at it in the last week is uh, to remember and recognize again that all of us are born into a culture. And uh, what our culture tells us is normal, so often we accept, usually without thinking, because it's all we've experienced. So think of a fish born into a fish tank. You know, it swims around in a little fish tank. It's not marveling at the fact that the gravel on the floor is multicolored and that there is a little plastic treasure chest in the corner and that food magically appears on the top of the water every single day. It's all it's known. It's its entire world. So it's not got anything to compare it to. It's never been in the Caribbean or in the Atlantic. It's everything it knows. And in the same way, we all live within a fish tank. Wherever in the world we happen to live, that's the case. We're living in the fish tank of the 21st century West. And every culture that we find ourselves living in, and this is true of our culture, has a way of doing identity formation. And the way it forms and shapes identity within us is not through lectures and textbooks, It's far more subtle and far more powerful. It forms identity in us through stories, through songs, and through slogans. And so it presents to us um, something that is how you get your sense of self, but it's presented as as this is self-evident. This is obvious. This is how all of us would form our identity. But what's fascinating about it is that it's actually not self-evident because if we look at cultures in different parts of the world, and if we look at our own culture over time, we can see that the self-evident way of forming your identity just changes as culture changes. Um, Think of it a bit like the fashion industry. So I googled yesterday, fashion in the 80s. This is the picture that came up. And uh, what I love about that is knowing that some of you were those people 40 years ago. And you've still got the tracksuits, you know, somewhere buried in your attic or something. And let's keep the photo up. What I find fascinating about this, this particular picture is that these people 
40 years ago, it's not that long, 40 years ago were the height of cool. You know, they were waking up in the morning going, which of my multicolored tracksuits shall I wear today? And now we all look back at them and we think, you look ridiculous. The only place we could find clothes like that is in a fancy dress shop. Like, you look like a clown on a fitness drive. Um, what were you thinking? But, but at, the, at the time, they all thought that that was the only way to dress. Here's another thought that I'll throw at you. 40 years from now, think about this, 40 years from now, the clothes that you and I came to church in this morning will be the equivalent of that. So, so in 2060, someone will have a fancy dress themed party and the theme will be the year 2020. And uh, someone will be, oh my word, what on earth am I going to wear? I need to find my costume. And they will go to like a fancy dress costume shop and they will buy a denim shirt like this one and they will put it on and then they will go off to their, their party in 2060 and they'll walk through the door. And what's more, not only will they walk through the door wearing this, but when they walk through the door, the reaction of everyone at the party will be like, oh my word, that is hilarious. Look at that denim shirt. Like, can you believe people used to wear that? Like, that's so stupid. And people will laugh because by that point it will not be the height of fashion as it is today and that's and that's what happens with fashion it changes but here's the point at the time when you are living in the middle of the trend you feel like it's the only way to dress if we could step out of our own cultural moment we'd be able to observe what the trends are And when it comes to identity formation, the same is true. When you're in the middle of it, it's very hard to see it. So what what can be helpful for us to do as we consider this subject is if we can to step outside of our own cultural bubble for a little while and just as neutrally as possible, make some observations about the trends that are happening in the fish tank within which we swim. uh, To mix metaphors. So what are the current trends in identity formation? Um, I'm going to talk about two types of culture, traditional culture, really briefly, and then modern culture, which is the one that we're in. So in traditional culture, um, their version of kind of identity formation, the way it happened was that you were encouraged as a person, if you want to find out who you are, you were encouraged to look outside of yourself. So you would look to, it was much more community orientated than the individualistic West that we live in now. So you were encouraged to look to your family, you were encouraged to look to your community, and your community and family would give you a role. And then um, you would, you would, because it was all about family and community, the role might be as a son or as a daughter, it might be as a husband or as a mother, but they would give you that role. And then you were expected to fulfill and to meet the community's expectations. Now, if you were able to do that and you did a good job of being a husband or a mother or a child, if you did a good job of that, then the community would affirm you and it would validate you and it would honor you. And that's where you got your sense of self and your sense of worth from. Now, often, in order to do that, you would see these are the preferences of my community. Um, I really would rather not do that because I don't want to. My desires tell me to do something else. But, but I, want to, I want to become somebody. So what I will do is something called self-denial. I will deny myself in order to fulfill this role that society has asked for me. So whether that's denying myself by risking my life having children, or it's denying myself by risking my life on a battlefield, I will put the community above myself, and in that I will be affirmed in who I am. So that's how traditional culture did it. What's interesting is that our modern culture is the exact opposite. 
of that. And um, again, remember that this isn't communicated to us through textbooks and lectures, but through stories and songs and slogans. But the, the narrative, the trend of the culture that we're a part of is something that sociologists have called expressive individualism. And so now, rather than looking outside of ourselves to find out what the community wants of us, the encouragement is to look where? Inside, right? We're to look inside of ourselves. What are my desires? What are my feelings? What are my intuitions? What are my emotions? I need to express these in order to be myself. And the place that we find worth and validation is no longer from the community or from the family. The place that we get it today is from ourselves. No one has a right to tell you how to live your life. No one else can give you worth. You've got to bestow worth on yourself. Does that sound familiar? You've got to give yourself dignity. You've got to have a bit of self-belief. And, um, and so where that leads us to as whereas the old way used to be, this is the community's expectations of me, so I need to deny myself in order to live those out. The modern way of approaching life is not that. What it is, is rather than it becoming about self-denial, it's become about self-expression. And it's become about self-assertion. And the real heroes often presented to us in the films and the songs that we're listening to and watching now, the heroes are those people who say, look, my community might not like it, my family might not like it, the society of which I'm a part might not like it, but this is who I am, and I'm going to be this person. Do you recognize that as a narrative? Um, if you don't, I just want to show you one example. This is from a film, and this is not a criticism of the film. I love the film Frozen. Now, some of you have never seen Frozen, um, but I'm just going to play you a short clip of the most famous song from Frozen. And in Frozen, Elsa is a girl who has kind of special powers, and she's told to hide that. And, uh, and then this is what happens in the song. I actually did the Disney sing-along version. For those of you who feel like you have a need to join in, I want you to know you have permission to do that. Uh, let's play the song. We won't watch the whole thing, just a little clip. Don't let them know Well, now they know Let it go, let it go Can't hold you back anymore Let it go, let it go Turn away and slam the door I don't care what they're going to say Let the story I know you all wanted to sing the chorus there. I'm so sorry. I've got some other things I need to say. Maybe we can come back afterwards and watch the rest of it. Um, 
But did you, did you notice the lyrics there, right? So at one point she says, she's quoting people talking to her, be the good girl you always have to be. Um, that's what the community expects of you. And then her eventual reaction to that is, um, it's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. And that there is, is the modern approach. Um, in traditional identity formation, what you did is you, you, you looked at what the world expected of you, then you went inside and you argued with yourself, you buried your desires, and then you attempted to live out what the world expects. In the modern, what you do is you look at what you desire and what you expect, you come out and you look, maybe society expects something different, but instead of burying this, you then cause it to rise up within you, and you say, no, this is who I am. And um, what I'm, what I'm not trying to do is pass a value judgment on either of those. I'm just trying to help us to see as neutrally as possible. This is the trend that we um, live and breathe in every single day. And so obviously, if that is the trend and it's all about expressing what's inside, then, um, then the, the conversation around identity shifts grounds in terms of where it's, it's resting. And so that's why it won't surprise us to, to hear that there are certain things that are being debated that maybe a little while ago never would have been. One is to do with race and the question of race. So I don't know if you know, noticed in the news, but in 2015, there was a lady called Rachel Doazel, and she sparked controversy because she was white and she was born to white parents, but she um, pretended to be a black woman. And she actually became the president of the local NAACP uh, chapter in America uh, that, she, that she lived nearby, near Washington. And eventually she was outed and people said, hang on a second, you, you know, you're not black, your parents are white. And rather than um, kind of slinking away quietly, what she did is she, she, she came out on national television and she said, yes, both my parents are white and I have no kind of you know, heritage that's not non-European or white in my background, but actually I self-identify as black. And it began a conversation around race and, you know, how do we decide what our race is. She, she's since written a book in 2017 called In Full Color, Finding My Place in a Black and White World, in which she tells the story of how when she was a child, she, when she was choosing to draw herself, she would always choose to use the brown crayon. Um, and gender is another area um, where, where our culture is changing rapidly in terms of how it approaches the question of gender. So... In uh, not very long ago, Facebook, they changed their options for gender from male and female, they had two options, to go instead to having 71 different options for gender. And then they received um, criticism that that was not enough, uh, complaints that that wasn't enough. And so what they ended up doing is they've changed it now so that there is three options, male, female, and custom. Uh, on the BBC, um, a little while ago, there was an education program, and it was aimed at 9 to 12-year-olds. As part of this, uh, this program, there's, there's a question asked by a child to a teacher, um, because obviously young people are having to wrestle with all of the things that this will inevitably raise, about gender. And they were told by the teacher that um, over 100 different genders have now been discovered. And... The, the point I'm trying to make is, again, I'm not disparaging that. I'm not, I'm not what, but it's just helpful to observe this is what is happening. 
And the, um, uh, as part of that kind of conversation, it's also worth noting that there's no scientific evidence behind all these genders that have been discovered. But what's happened is that the way that we think about identity formation has changed. And so it has primarily become about your inner emotions and your inner feelings. And I want to underline explicitly what I am not saying this morning. Um, I am not in any way communicating anything negative about people who experience a genuine disconnect between their perceived gender and their biological sex, or their perceived race and their actual race, or their perceived age and their actual age. Um, I'm simply trying to help us to recognize that this is a major trend in the culture that we're a part of. And it's summed up by a columnist called Janice Turner, who's writing about self-identifying. And uh, she kind of put the mantra of today in a little phrase that I think sums it up perfectly. She just says, uh, today, the way that we do identity is, I am who I say I am. I am my emotions, I am my feelings, and I am going to assert them. And before we go any further, let's, let's also recognize something else individualism is not a wholly evil thing. We're all probably very grateful for individualism. It's the reason why we don't have to do what our grandparents used to do for a living. Um, it's a good thing that we live as part of a world that recognizes individual human rights and dignity because people are made in God's image. Uh, the other thing that I'm not saying is that it's, it's a bad thing to go inside and to discover our emotions and our feelings. I think if we back, back, went back to 1920, we'd probably want them to go inside and discover their emotions and feelings because there was a major disconnect between head and heart. What's really going on? I've had counseling. I will have more counseling, I expect, in the years ahead to try and help me work out what is going on with my emotions and with my feelings and it's a good thing to engage with them but but here's where we we might want to be aware um, as followers of Jesus it's helpful to recognize also that that's not a good way to, to if if the if the goal is to have a stable and secure identity that's not the way to get there it just doesn't work for, for a number of reasons so, so one reason would be, okay, if we're looking into our deepest feelings and our deepest desires and then expressing them no matter what anyone else says, and if we think that's how to find true identity and authentic self, um, we're going to come a cropper because, of, because here's one reason. One is um, our feelings are confused and our emotions about things change, don't they? Or, or are you perfectly emotionally consistent with, with when you were a 14-year-old? Um, and I remember when I was 14, just to give you a silly example, but I was madly in love with, with a girl that I had a crush on, and I knew that she was the one because my emotions told me that she was. Um, thank God she didn't agree with me when I asked her out. But at the time, I was so sure, I was utterly convinced that was the way uh, to go. Not, we, we, we think of feelings and emotions as this incredibly reliable navigator. And actually, they're, sometimes they're, they're not as reliable as we think. They chop and they change. Another thing to be aware of with emotions, and I know we all know it, but they're conflicting. So you can have two very deep emotions, very deep feelings that actually are the opposites. And so I, I feel like very deeply that I would like to be in good shape. But I also feel very, very deeply that I would like to eat all the cake in the entire world. So I've got both of these feelings raging inside of me. That makes it hard to, to find a secure and stable identity if you're basing it purely on what's inside of you. Here's a second reason why it's, it's, 
it's not a way that I would advise us to go, although I've made the mistake of going there many times because we're part of the culture, is if that's our approach, it becomes to us a crushing pressure and a huge weight to carry. People rightly criticize the traditional way of doing culture formation because the pressure that came there is if you're not meeting the expectations of your family, if you're not meeting the expectations of your community, then you're not validated and you're not honored. And so, of course, it was this constant needing to achieve and this constant striving and this constant fear that accompanied that, which is if I don't live up to the expectations, then maybe they won't like me, maybe I won't become somebody. But, but the solution is not to take it from that to, to putting it all inside. Because what will happen is rather than attempting to meet the expectations of our society, we attempt to meet our own expectations of ourselves, our own dreams. Have you ever tried to become the perfect version of yourself? I find that whenever I've tried to do that, I have this, this perfect version of Andy, this idealized version of Andy Croft walking around next to me all the time with a giant baseball bat, just beating up the real me. Because I can't meet your standards and I can't meet my own standards. So what can happen then is we go on this perpetual journey that never ends of attempting to become this great dream that we've found inside of ourselves and you never get there and you're always miserable and however authentic you feel like you've become you never you you could always be more authentic so we think so we end up we think it's freedom I'm going to throw off the chains and I'm going to you know break break free as Elsa sang now I'm free no right no wrong no rules for me we think we're pursuing freedom but it's a trap because where we end up is we end up enslaved to this ideal version of ourselves we can never ever attain to and uh, and so what does work and where do we go as Jesus' people? And this is where we come back to the passage and we come back to the scripture. And um, there's two things that I, I want to make the points uh, from the passage that I started with. The first one is this. As Jesus' people, and this isn't popular in our world, but as Jesus' people, we believe that we need to be given our name by him from outside of ourselves. We need to be named by God. And the reason we don't like um, instinctively in the culture that we're a part of, that idea of someone from outside of us naming us, we don't like that because it sounds oppressive. And it has at times been used to oppress people. Um, but, and yet, let's recognize that self-validation and giving worth to ourselves, um, it, it, it's, it doesn't work in terms of secure identity. And I know because I have tried it many, many times. I have stood in front of the mirror morning after morning after morning, and I've said things to myself like, Andy, you're incredible. You are the best husband anyone could ever be. You are the most phenomenal pastor in the entire... They're lucky to have you at the church. Andy, you blow my socks off every single day. Wow, just look at you. And uh, the truth is, even I know that that is empty. It doesn't do very much for me. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't speak positively about ourselves rather than doing down on ourselves. I'm just saying that it's not possible to bestow security upon ourselves in that way because we're social beings, because we're relational in our nature. We're made to draw it from one another. And actually, instinctively, we know that is true, don't we? And, and what matters to us is when someone you love, because the question is, well, who's going to speak my name to me? When someone you love and when someone you admire comes to you and they speak the name and they say, this is what I see in you, then that is incredibly affirming. 
So if you've ever had it, maybe some of us are teachers here. I don't know if you've ever had it where you've got one of those teachers in, in your school who is like one of the legends of the game. You know, they've been there forever and they've seen it all. And they've, they, they've got the knack of taking a young life and shaping it and sending it off to fly. And then imagine that person who you admire and who you respect comes up to you at the end of a long day where you're feeling discouraged. And they take you to one side and they just say, there is a teacher in you. And I see that, and I just want you to know it's right there, and whatever it is, you have it. Then what would happen to almost all of us, because that's someone we love and respect and admire, is, hmm, yeah. Whereas you stand in front of a mirror and say, you're the best teacher ever, you know what, that might help a bit, but it's probably not going to have the same impact. Those of us who've got par- who've got, who are parents of teenagers, you know, have you ever had it where you say, how's your day? Uh, what do you want for dinner? Uh. And, uh, and then imagine one of them just breaks out from the darkness one time and just looks at you, you know, just out of the blue and just says, hey, I just, do you know what? I just love you. You're the best dad. You know, thank you for doing this for me. Thank you for doing that for me. And then they go back to grunting again. But just that is enough to keep you going for a while, isn't it? Because, because we love them, because we adore them. So when someone we love and someone we adore speaks affirmation over us and just affirms us in who we are, then it does our spirits good. Um, I remember when I was 17, I ended up going to this Christian camp that, um, that Mike dragged me to. And uh, no, I didn't know Mike. A friend of mine dragged me to the place that I met Mike. And uh, I remember just being a baby Christian and not really having very much experience, but seeing Mike on a stage and hearing him share the good news of Jesus, thinking, wow, that guy's got it. He deserves an MBE one day. And... uh, (laughs) And just thinking, he's cool, man, he's cool. And then he came and found me um, just, just in, the, in the dinner queue. And he, he prayed for me and he just said to me, I just think there's leadership on you. I just think there's leadership on you. And I was on cloud nine when he said that. Not because, because it was someone that I admired and someone that I respected, even though at that point I didn't even know him very well, who suddenly spoke something into me. So we, we believe we need someone external to us to speak to us truth. And who that person is matters. Um, it should not be someone who could ever let us down or disappoint us. It should not be someone who is up and down depending on their emotions and their whims. And it should not be someone who's up and down depending on our successes or our failures. Uh, it should not be someone who could ever leave us. And it should not be someone we can ever lose because if we lose them, then we lose our sense of self. On top of that, it does need to be someone we esteem, someone we admire, and someone we adore. Can you think of anyone like that? And um, when someone we know and love and respect speaks truth to us, a little bit of us comes to life. And that's when a person does it. So think about this. How might we react when we, we come to appreciate once again We remind ourselves of that which we already know, but we forgot once again that the creator of heaven and earth speaks to us and gives us a name. John chapter 10, verse 3. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. We're a sheep, which is a divine insult because they are the least independent animals in the universe and yet at the same time he names us he calls us his own and the name that he gives to us is this my son my 
daughter. There's so many passages of the scripture that we could look to where we see the truth of that. I'll just content myself to saying two. Here's John chapter 1 verse 12. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right. Do you see that? It's a right. No one can take it from you. He gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of a human's decision, or of a husband's will, but born of God. And then 1 John chapter 3, verse 1 says this. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. And so the conversation around this has to shift from what's right and what's wrong um, to, to who do I belong to. And when we start to root ourselves and ground ourselves and, and have a firm foundation resting upon who is it who names me, what do you call me, then what you find yourself finally bursting into is what Elsa was aiming for but she never quite made it, which is to genuine freedom and to genuine wholeness and to real, true, everlasting life that will go beyond this small window of temporary existence that we have on the earth into the eternity that we as Jesus' people and as God's children children have always been destined for but you hear it like that and it sounds to me it sounds good but 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 it also sounds abstract and it can also sound like yeah so I'm God's child so go figure so I've heard that idea before and and this is where we come on to the second point which is this he names us but also he gives us our worth our sense of worth And uh, that's where we have John, chapter 10, verse 11. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Uh, Tim Keller talks about a a girl in his youth group who was really depressed um, for a while. And he went round to see her. And he said that she said this to him. She said, what use is it being a Christian if no boy will ask you out? And in fact, if they won't even look at you. And he had a conversation with her around that. Um, But one of the things that he said on reflection from that conversation is he said her identity was a bit like a, a stack of cards. And Jesus was very much there. He was very much in the deck of cards. He was part of her identity, but he wasn't, the ba- he wasn't the basis of the identity. And so the way he put it is he says, it's like Jesus was in the deck, but he wasn't on the top of the deck. He wasn't the card that she was dealing, so to speak. The card she was dealing was for, in her instance, for male approval. And uh, for many of us, it will be something different. But it's, it's, we find ourselves saying things like, what is, what's the use of being a Christian if... And it's not just relationships that get us in a tangle with this stuff. It's all sorts. What's the, what's the point of being a Christian if my career is on the rocks? What's the point of being a Christian if I've, if I've failed as a parent in this area? And our identity has Jesus inside of it somewhere, but he's somewhere in the middle of the deck, and he's not at the top of the deck. And the question, of course, then becomes, well, how do I move him to the top of the deck? And part of that, that's an ongoing journey Maybe we need to look at this in another week um, as part of our, our exploration here. But it, it's, it's finding a way of, of, of speaking to ourselves and our thoughts and the core of our being and our souls. And I know it's easier said than done that the value that he places upon us. Um, think of it like this. So one of the first times I ever heard Mike preach, he shared this story. Some of you would have heard it before. Uh, you'll have to forgive me. 
But he was talking about how he was listening to the radio one day, and he heard uh, a backpacker telling a story. They just got back from Indonesia. This is many, many years ago. Um, they just got back from a particular part of Indonesia where they'd been. And this part of Indonesia was made up of lots of tiny little islands. And uh, they, were, they were telling a story about what was customary on these islands, speaking of other cultures, where uh, the custom was that if a man wanted to marry a woman, he would have to buy her, uh, he would have to pay for her like a dowry. But in that particular part of the world, they paid for the women, uh, not with money, but with cows. And the number of cows a woman was worth, and this is wrong, and I'm not suggesting we do it, but the number of cows a woman was worth depended on how attractive she was found to be. So if she was very attractive, the person might pay three cows for her. Uh, if she was maybe not very attractive, they might pay half a cow for her. And um, anyway, this guy said he was on a boat, and he was going between the islands when he saw these, these locals who were also on the boat just rolling around in hysterics, just having a really good laugh at something. So he went over to them, and he said, what are you guys laughing about? And, uh, and they said, well, there's a guy on the island that we are traveling to who has paid five cows for his wife. Now, in the history of this whole thing happening, that's only ever happened once before, and she was like Miss Indonesia. So he's like, he's paid five cows for his wife, and um, she's not very attractive. They said, you would have to pay us five cows to marry her. So this guy gets to the island, and he goes looking for uh, the guy, and he's not hard to find because everyone knows where the idiot lives. So he finds this guy's house. He knocks on his door, and he sort of has a conversation with him. He says to him, look, do you not realize everybody is laughing at you behind your back? Don't you, you know, why did you pay five cows for your wife? And the guy looks at him, and he says, I paid five cows for my wife because she's worth five cows to me. And he says, because she knows that I paid five cows for her, she walks around the island with her head held high. And she can say, I am a five-cow woman. <laughs> you, three cows. You, two cows. I'm worth five cows. <laughs> and he says, she's all the more beautiful for it. Now, I know because you're like me, you are struggling to work out who you are. And I appreciate that it's not easy. And for some of us, relationships are a source of life and joy. But for many of us, and different seasons bring different things, they're a source of pain and hurt and confusion, sometimes ridicule. And it's hard to know where to look to find security and stability in an unstable world and an unstable culture. And this is where, as Jesus' people, we need to wake up and smell the coffee, that we have the best news around, that there is, a, there is a place, there is someone who gives us a name, and the someone will never let us go and never let us down. He's an expert at, at relationships. And here's the other part of it. He also gives us a value. He puts a worth on us. And here's the piece of news that I found amazing, but it's true, right? He doesn't care in the sense of like, it's not relevant to him. He cares about what you care about, but it's not relevant to him, the value you decide you have. And many of us, when we're really honest with ourselves, don't think we're worth very much. But this is his estimation of your worth the life of his only son, 
Jesus Christ. He sees my shame, my guilt, my confusion, my darkness that I hide from virtually everybody I can. He sees everything. And he still says, this is what I think you're worth. The same is true for you. And when we understand that, what we will find, the other stuff follows. It's not that it's not going to be part of a conversation on identity. Of course it will be. It follows. But this, him, Jesus, he's the rock. And everything else gets built upon him. 